You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing faith-based prisons in the United States. What exactly are faith-based prisons, and why are some states sending inmates to them? Are faith-based prisons a violation of the separation of church and state? And what are the religious teachings these prisons typically promote? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Brad Stoddard. He is the author of the new book, Hot Off the Presses, called Spiritual Entrepreneurs, Florida's Faith-Based Prisons and the American Carceral State, available now. You can read an excerpt from his book in the upcoming May issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Brad. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? I heard someone the other day describe themselves as doing COVID okay. And I think that (laughs) that pretty much summarizes how I'm feeling these days. All things considered, I'm okay, but it's still within the context of COVID. So I'm COVID okay. And thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Of course, I'm glad that we can do this. So before I read your book, I knew almost nothing about faith-based prisons. And as soon as I saw your book's cover, I knew immediately I wanted to read your book, even though we're theoretically not supposed to judge books by their covers. Um, but for everyone listening, I want to describe the cover briefly. It's an artistic rendering of a prison cell where the black bars on the cell door have a dollar sign in the middle. And then behind the cell door is a large white cross. So immediately we know there is some sort of commingling of American prisons, Christianity, and money. And I have to say the book totally lives up to this intriguing cover. Well, thank so, you. I appreciate that. Of course. So the faith-based prisons that you studied are operated by the state of Florida, along with many Christian volunteers. But such faith-based prisons are not limited to Florida. You say in the book that they exist, I believe, in about half of the country's states. And that since about the 1990s, taxpayer money has been rerouted in some places from things like welfare and social service programs into these faith-based prisons. So I'd love for us to start with just some basics. Will you explain for us what exactly are faith-based prisons and what are the goals of such faith-based prisons? Sure, that is a deceptively difficult question to answer, the first part of it. (laughs) And the reason is, well, there are many reasons, but one reason is that as you correctly mentioned, roughly half the states in the nation operate, or I should say, roughly half of the correctional departments or the Department of Corrections, Mm. the DOCs, they operate versions of faith-based correctional institutions. That's the broad Mm. category. Mm -hmm. And most of those, the overwhelming majority of the faith-based correctional institutions in the country are faith-based dormitories. Uh, What happens is during the era of mass incarceration, which began in earnest roughly 1980, People were being incarcerated so fast that they couldn't isolate everyone in their own cells. And so there was this large wave of building correctional dormitories, what are commonly called warehouses, basically, where they're mm-hmm. you know, so-called warehousing the incarcerated. Right. And in these dorms, you can sleep somewhere between 60 and 80 in the average dorm. And so 
The major trend in American corrections is to take one single dormitory within a conventional prison. It's still state-run, state-administered, all of that. But you take one dormitory and you create a faith-based facility in that dormitory only. Mm -hmm. What I study, however, is the state of Florida. And in the state of Florida, they operate what is, to my knowledge, the world's largest faith-based correctional facilities programs. The last time I interacted with Florida's DOC professionally was several years ago now. They operated 35 what they call faith and character-based correctional institutions. And that included 32 faith and character-based correctional dormitories and three entire faith-based prisons. Mm -hmm. And so the state of Florida leads this movement, but it is a growing movement and it's largely flying under the radar. Broadly speaking, the goal of faith-based correctional institutions is for the state to defer to uh, religious socialization, religious programming for the sake of reducing recidivism. And to that end, the state largely stays out of the religious content that is taught in faith and character-based correctional institutions and in state-run faith-based dormitories more broadly. Uh, the state, to a certain extent, stays out of it, and they open up the doors to volunteers who come in and teach the majority of these classes. So the short answer is to rely on faith-based socialization to reduce recidivism. So the commingling of religion and prisons isn't new. As you talk about in your book, there have been earlier ideas about prison as a form of repentance. And certainly in the United States, prison chaplains from multiple religious communities have been allowed within prisons. What specifically makes these prisons different? Is it that religion is seen as the primary mechanism by which criminals will be rehabilitated versus other prisons where religion might just be one mechanism among many? Yeah, that's a good question. One of the things I chart in the book is that there is this larger history of interaction between religion and prison. For most of human history, the state or the government, the political system, whatever that was, their primary method of punishment was never incarceration. Instances of incarceration, of long-term incarceration, are few and far between from a you know, historical perspective. It wasn't until the late 1700s, early 1800s, that people decided that they should experiment with new things called penitentiaries. And one of the motivations was that by taking someone who is a sinner slash criminal, and they use those terms broadly, you know, interchangeably, by taking someone who's a sinner criminal, they could isolate that person in monastic-like conditions inside a cell mm. where they could uh, rely on religious socialization to you know, change the person and make them a quote unquote productive member of society. So there is this larger history of mingling between prisons and religion. And of course, even in the original prisons, you had chaplains who were in many cases, the only person the incarcerated could talk to. And so hmm. there is this larger history of religion and prisons, but there are several things that make faith-based correctional institutions different. One thing that makes them different is just the wholesale reliance on religious socialization. That is, the early prisons, they would include uh, what we would call not necessarily vocational rehabilitation, but they did try to teach a work ethic. Mm, they did okay. try to provide other forms of education, literacy and whatnot, sure. and they provided religion as a component to it. The literature, not just my own research, but broadly speaking, uh, suggests that in faith-based correctional institutions, there is more of a doubling down on the religious component of the socialization or the programming, mm -hmm. where you can argue that the religious component is displacing the emphasis on other forms of rehabilitation. And so that would be the major difference. Another major difference is simply the development of prisons that are not as focused on religion as they are in faith-based correctional institutions. 
another difference that relates to faith-based correctional institutions is the relying on volunteer labor and on the incarcerated, the labor of the incarcerated to teach people. Mm-hmm. So the basic administrative structure of a faith and character-based correctional institution in Florida is the following. You have the warden who mostly is responsible for the administrative structure. Uh, the first warden I met, I had to uh, sit outside his office and wait while he dealt with a worker harassment complaint, like, you know, just the day-to-day logistics sure. of running a prison. Sure. In terms of the actual programming, that falls largely onto the laps of the chaplains. And so the chaplains are responsible in the individual institutions for scheduling almost all of the classes. And one of the ways that they try to navigate constitutional issues is by keeping the chaplain out of programming the specific content for most of the classes. Hmm. So instead, they largely recruit Christian volunteers who come in and do maybe 40% of the classes, the seminars, the services, the programs, etc. Okay. And then they actually train incarcerated people to lead about 40 more percent or maybe even 50%. And so what's different about faith-based correctional institutions is they're basically opening it up to arguably untrained, Mm -hmm. comparably uneducated uh, leaders who turn around and teach just about any content they want uh, as long as it's within certain parameters. So I would say those are the main differences. Interesting. So I know you spent multiple years within these faith-based incarceration facilities. So since you've spent so much time as a visitor inside these faith-based prisons, will you describe for us what daily life or weekly life is like in these prisons? Paint a picture for us. You know, what is involved in these classes? What other type of activities are happening in these faith-based facilities? Sure. So Florida's faith and character-based correctional institutions, or their FCBIs, they are designed somewhat like colleges in the sense that you only spend a portion of your time there. You One, you have to volunteer to get in. For constitutional reasons, they can't force anyone to hmm. participate in an FCBI. So you have to volunteer, you have to meet other admission criteria. And once you're in, you have to complete a total of, I think it's 1,220 hours of learning or 1,220 credits. And in a faith and character-based dorm, you can complete that in 18 months. If you're living in a faith and character-based prison, right, as opposed to a dorm, uh, it takes three years to complete the program. And then you are, most of the incarcerated are are cycled out of the FCBIs and go back into general population. Mm. So the question becomes, why does it take someone in a prison, in an FCBI prison, twice as long as it takes someone in an FCBI dorm to complete the program? And there's a very simple answer to that. In FCBI dorms, people wake up and almost from the moment they go to bed until the moment they go to sleep, they're, enga- they're involved in rehabilitative programming, you know, hmm. primarily faith-based rehabilitative programming. Mm-hmm. In a prison, however, you wake up, you eat, you go about your work assignments, you take classes, Sometimes you might take one or two classes a day, but you're also balancing your work assignment in the facility. And so half of your time is devoted to work, half of the time is devoted to studies. And so it takes twice as long in an FCBI prison for you to matriculate, to graduate from it as it does in an FCBI dorm. So that's the important distinction to note in terms of what day-to-day life is like. Now, in terms of the actual diversity of classes, 
Yeah. One thing that Florida has actively tried to do, they have reformed their faith-based correctional facilities program based on the DOC attorney's evolving understanding of the guidelines that might judge this kind of a religion state mm. partnership. Yeah. Keep in mind, yeah. the Supreme Court has never weighed in. Are these things legal? Uh, and right. so Florida's Department of Corrections has said we want to avoid all legal issues. So <laughs> mm-hmm. if it looks like there's a way we can modify the system to make it work, mm-hmm. let's do that. Some of the things that are important about Florida is Florida's facilities are overwhelmingly dominated by Christians. No one can deny that. And more specifically by conservative Christianity that I associate with the term new Christian, right? This is a common term we use in academia to describe more or less what average person thinks of when they think of the religious riot or evangelicals, you know, politically active conservatives, largely Protestant. And so the members of the new Christian, right? They're the overwhelming majority of the incarcerated and the volunteers and the chaplains for that matter. However, if these things stand a chance at being constitutional, they have to be religiously pluralistic. Mm -hmm. And so for this reason, they're dominated by Christians, but you also get black Hebrew Israelites, you get Mm. Odinists, you get Wiccans, and uh, what else? Messianic Jews, Rastafarians, various types of Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there is some degree of religious diversity within these facilities. And also the important thing in 2005, Florida's Department of Corrections changed the name of their program from faith-based correctional institutions to faith and character-based correctional institutions. And they made that addition of character for one simple practical reason. Uh, a dorm in Iowa, as Winnie Sullivan describes in her book, Prison Religion, a dorm in Iowa was being sued by Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. And it was pretty clear that the program was going to be declared illegal. Mm-hmm. It was open to everyone, but everyone was subjected to evangelical religious mm-hmm. programming. Mm-hmm. And so Florida's Department of Corrections, according to the senior administrators I interviewed, they were watching that decision and they saw which way you know, the winds were blowing, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And they said, what do we need to do? Because we, you know, we have too many incarcerated people in these facilities. We don't want to close them down. And their attorneys recommended, well, we need to highlight that we don't favor religious programming, but it's an opportunity for faith and secular programming. So there's really no privileging of one or the other. It's just like a community college that includes religion. And so the attorney said, well, then why not just call them faith and secular and be done with it? And the uh, chaplains, uh, some of the senior chaplains said, we can't really throw the word secular in there because most of the volunteers associate the word secularity with Satan. Mm. And so the idea of a faith and satanic based correctional institution (laughs) would just, the volunteers would leave and that would kill the program. Wow. So Florida deliberately created what they call character development courses. And so today the programming is uh, organized, all of the classes, all of the programming is organized into seven modules. So you have like the healthy choices module, the family module, the mentoring module. Only one of those seven modules is actually labeled faith. Hmm. And the category of faith or you know, the faith-based module has the fewest required classes. However, as I find when I, uh, when I do my research, every class uh, with the exception of yoga, Uh, Yoga was the only class where I didn't really depict any overtly what we commonly associate with religious themes. Hmm. But even then, you could argue that yoga is inherently religious. Uh, But that was the only class. Yoga was the only one that really wasn't dominated by what we would associate with religious overtones. And conservative Christianity becomes the default in most of the classes. And to get rid of those or that kind of uh, 
conservative Christian influence, you really have to go to the partisan services. Like, for example, the Messianic Jews, they're not going to have anything to do with that. The Muslim services, they're not going to reflect that sure. that Christian influence. Um, but yeah, they have all kinds of self-help programs. They have addiction recovery, a variety of addiction recovery, uh, yoga, there are other programs like a program called Why Try, which is try to help you give motivation. There's Toastmasters. All the programs that are common in prison are in these facilities, but they're taught from a more kind of conservative base, so to speak. Yeah, I'm curious about that. I'd love to hear you say a bit more on what the conservative teachings that you felt were prominent in these institutions. I believe in the book you say that you largely found that the volunteers were not only espousing conservative Protestant ideas, but they often were aligned with the Southern Baptist Convention. Give us a sense of what are some of the prominent religious teachings that circulate in these institutions. The Southern Baptist Convention plays an important role in the average FCBI, or Faith and Character-Based Correctional Institution. So in 1980, there was this basic battle in the Southern Baptist Convention during their annual meeting between the common terms are more moderates and fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. And so the fundamentalists win, and they elect their leaders to prominent positions within the Southern Baptist Convention. They double down on things like submission theology, that women should submit to men, much as uh, the church submits to God. They start teaching, you know, adamantly against abortion. They're against the so-called culture wars or, you know, taking one side in the culture wars. Basically, they become more, you know, politically conservative, socially conservative, economically conservative. So how does this make its way into Florida prisons? One person wrote a book called In Florida, Baptists Are the Center of Gravity. And that's specifically true with Florida's Department of Corrections. Florida's Department of Corrections has been, in terms of its chaplaincy, has been dominated by Baptists for a very long time. And in fact, Florida's Department of Corrections had this, uh, I think he served for 26 years as the head of Florida's Department of Corrections. The position is called the secretary instead of the director, but mm. he was the DOC's longest serving secretary. And at one point he said, when I interviewed him, he said that he had to fire the head chaplain because he simply would only hire Baptists. And wow. so this is important because most of the chaplains then are members of the SBC. And to become a chaplain, you have to have denominational endorsement, which means that you have to sign on to the SBC's statement of faith. Mm. So by the time we reach 1980s, 1990s, when the first faith-based correctional facilities are being built, yeah. the yeah. Baptist base is already there. Mm. And furthermore, the Baptist chaplains are recruiting volunteers, not only from their churches, but from churches with like-minded theologies. Ah. And so what happens is you have this scenario where the chaplains are already there and they're either Baptist or have a similar theology. All the Baptists that I met in every faith-based correctional facility in Florida that I researched, they were either members of the SBC, they identified as fundamentalist, one identified as a five-point Calvinist, and one refused to identify what denomination, but talking to the person, it was clear that he was on that end of the theological spectrum, if sure, we can put it sure. that way. And so what happens is the chaplains, as I mentioned, they recruit volunteers who think like them. And I will say this, there is one major restriction that's put on all chaplains and on all volunteers, and that is that they have to accept religious pluralism. 
And this is important because when Florida was creating its first faith-based prison on Christmas Eve in 2003, when they dedicated uh, Lottie Correctional Institution as the nation's first explicitly faith-based prison, Mm -hmm. and they actually had to transfer the existing chaplain out of the prison because he just roamed the halls condemning non-Christians to hell. And they couldn't have that in this new facility or, you know, in in this new semi-pluralistic facility. And so that kind of let them know that they have a bigger issue on their hands. So they talk to every volunteer and every volunteer has to agree, I can accept religious pluralism. Hmm. So it kind of self-polices in the sense that they weed out people who will disrupt the regime of pluralism, but it's still a regime of pluralism centered on conservative Protestants. Right, right. So I imagine that many listeners, when they hear that conservative Christians have a substantial role in these institutions, that their thoughts may turn to culture war issues of gender and sexuality. Right now, there are many states that are trying to restrict rights to transgender Americans and transgender adolescents. And you in your book, I believe there's a whole chapter on issues of gender and sexuality. So what are the teachings about sexuality and gender that you witnessed in these faith based prisons. Sure. The dominant teaching that I saw, not only in service after service, not only in class after class, whether it was a chaplain, whether it was a uh, volunteer, or whether it was one of the incarcerated themselves in both male and female facilities, the dominant ideas that are repeated day after day, class after class, are articulating ideals of sexuality that really correspond to the SBC's uh, current statement of faith. That is, men are head of household, women are to submit to men. The gay rights movement is one of, if not the biggest threat right now to America's relationship with God. Hmm. And these ideas, you know, submission theology is a big deal. And it's interesting, actually, if we can talk about ecumenicism to a certain extent in these facilities, because the way it works is that the people who go to faith-based correctional facilities, they tend to be more on the conservative side regardless of their religion. The Hmm. one exception to that would be the Wiccans, who are Hmm. incredibly liberal. Hmm. So you get more conservative Muslims, you get more conservative Christians, you get more conservative Messianic Jews. The Hebrew Israelites tend to be some of the more conservative members of the Hebrew Israelites. Hmm. And so they end up having similar ideas about gender and homosexuality. They talk about those ideas in their individual services, and then they'll go to a class that's just, you know, a generic self-help class, and the members of the different religions will find ecumenical moments on these issues of gender and sexuality. Mm. And so ecumenicism becomes constructed across this kind of pan-denominational conservative end of the theological spectrum. Does that make sense? Yes. And in the women's facilities, is this statement about they tend to come from conservative backgrounds, does that apply to women as well? Or are they learning to be submissive as part of their time spent in these facilities? Uh, Both. So I had that question. I I wanted to see how female facilities responded to the issue of female submission. I wanted to see how they would be similar. Would they be different? Right. And so the first FCBI for women that I entered was their faith-based correctional dorm. And I had my question answered within the first five minutes I was there. (laughs) The chaplain arranged for a series of interviews and 
interview after interview, they brought up the issue of submission. Hmm. And I was surprised that it was so, it was more prevalent in the women's facilities. Hmm. And so I, you know, I hung out, I spent about two years researching in FCBIs and entered female facilities multiple times. And what I came to realize and what I write about in the book is that the facilities for men teach men to be dominant heads of household, heads of state, heads of business, heads of politics, et cetera. Uh, and they teach the men how to be dominant. In FCBIs, they have to teach the women to submit and how to submit to men. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly problematic because the women in FCBIs are not unlike women in the larger incarcerated female population. They've had horrible relationships with men. Uh, they've been assaulted. They have substance abuse problems. Many of them have absent fathers. And so their history of interacting with men doesn't necessarily lend itself to the idea that they should just now submit to men. And so they have to go through the quote unquote process of, you know, they would say healing from their previous trauma at the same time, putting them in a mindset that they wouldn't really challenge the men in leadership positions. And so as I write in the book, uh, they have to be taught how to submit. And that results in a uh, extensive programming related to that topic. Again, not everyone embraces this. It is the dominant culture without a doubt. But I talked to women who said, oh God, yeah, the submission stuff in here drives me nuts. And I said, well, why do you stay? And they have other reasons. They say, you know, I had a three-year-old when I was incarcerated mm -hmm. uh, at this facility, at this faith-based facility. I'm closer to him. I get to see him now. Um, there are other reasons why some of the women will stay in these facilities. But again, they brought up how fed up they were with, with the submission theology and these ideas about, you know, gender and sexuality. Right. So I gathered from your book that supporters of these faith-based institutions want to claim that faith-based prisons will help with the country's overall crime and mass incarceration problems. But you say that the growth of these institutions has not helped improve the country's mass incarceration problem. Can you say a bit about why? Sure. There are a couple of reasons. Let's start by... Um citing the statistics that got me interested in this project in the mm. first place. Great, uh, the United great. States is less than 5% of the world's population, and we incarcerate about one quarter of the world's incarcerated population. Yes. And I say that, but let that sink in. We're less than 5% of the world's population, and we incarcerate almost one out of every four incarcerated people in the world. And of course, the, the racial dimensions of that are, are atrocious. We disproportionately incarcerate African-Americans and people of color. Right. And if we look at women, almost one out of every three women incarcerated anywhere in the world is in a U.S. prison. Wow. So we incarcerate more women than any other society per capita. Hmm. And it's not because we have particularly high crime rates. We do have higher crime rates of gun violence and certain types of violent crimes. But overall, you can look at at nation after nation with similar statistics, and you're going to see that they handle incarceration very differently. So to a large extent, we are an outlier with the way we use prisons. Hmm. And this impulse, the impulse to incarcerate, the increase in incarceration, it only emerges in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and then it skyrockets. Mm -hmm. uh, we've always disproportionately incarcerated a few more people than the average, you know, so-called modern state. Yeah. But that changes in the 1980s. And so if we're going to address mass incarceration, there's no fix in prison that I have seen that is going to address mass incarceration. Uh, criminal justice reform has to be massive, it has to be significant, and it has to happen at the federal level. Because until we can rein in the laws that are resulting in incarceration, until we can incentivize 
prosecutors not to go for the jugular on every case, mm -hmm. any change inside prisons is going to be cosmetic. And so for that reason alone, I conclude that this is an attempt to put a Band-Aid on something that's hemorrhaging. Mm -hmm. But the other reason why I'm skeptical that faith-based correctional facilities work in the sense of reducing incarceration mm -hmm. is the following. They're increasingly incarcerating the people that are already not going to return to prison. So let me explain how that works. The average recidivism rate in the United States is somewhere in the mid-60s. That is about two out of every three people who go to prison will return to prison. Hmm. The people who have uh, done studies on faith-based correctional institutions, however, document recidivism rates in the low teens. Now that sounds impressive from the mid sixties to the low teens. However, when we start looking at the characteristics of the people who are incarcerated in faith-based facilities and the people who graduate from faith-based facilities, a different picture emerges. So for example, the people who are incarcerated, they tend to be older, and we all, we know, I mean, everyone involved in criminology knows that around the age 30, 28 to 33, most people are done with crime. Crime is a young, primarily man's game. It's a young person's game. Hmm. And so the people who are more likely to go to FCBIs are older. They're toward the end of their sentences. Hmm. So we're already self-selecting a, a population that is largely not engaging uh, in recidivist behavior. Sure. You also have to have a comparably clean discipline report. Discipline report is when you do something untoward or against a prison policy sure. and you are given up what's called a discipline report. And so again, people with lower levels of disciplinary reports are statistically associated with lower recidivism rates. You also have to already be involved in programming. So you're already working on the type of programming mm. that's associated with lower recidivism rates. And for many years in Florida, you had to complete a workbook and that workbook prove that you are literate. So it kept illiterate people out of the program uh -huh. and illiterate people are the people most likely to recidivate. So what happens is you know, no one sat down and said, let's only get the people least likely to recidivate and put them in faith-based facilities, but the policies do that. Yes. And so once you're in a faith-based facility, then you have to complete the programming. And on any given month in Florida, between five and 7% of the incarcerated people are kicked out of every facility on a high month. It would be a very high month, but it would be 10% of the people. Wow. And so how can you get kicked out of an FCBI? Um, the most common ways that you get kicked out of FCBI are engaging in some sort of sexual behavior, primarily masturbation. And in almost every facility, if you masturbate, you're gone. In almost every faith-based correctional facility, if you masturbate or engage in any sexual behavior, uh, you are kicked out, no questions asked. Now, some of the other more common reasons that people are kicked out are because they are not doing enough programs to graduate on time or because they engage in violence. And so... Once you're in the facility, the people who display characteristics associated with recidivism are kicked out of the program. Mm. So the only people who are graduating from the programs, they're, they're not gonna return to prison anyway. So I don't see this as fixing, I see it as privileging a certain category of inmate. Sure. As a way of concluding and building off what you're talking about now, you know, now that your book is out, you're an expert on these prisons. If the Biden administration or any state government were to task you with working on prison reform, especially your thoughts on what should be done about faith-based correctional institutions, what recommendations do you think you might make? Yeah, there are two comments here. One is I would not make a recommendation about um faith-based correctional institutions. I want to stay far from that for a couple of reasons. One thing that I wanted to do with the book is I wanted 
critics of faith-based reform to see their potential virtues. Hmm. Some of the stories I read, they're stories of people who have never had a long-term positive relationship Hmm. and their life has been bouncing from one type of abusive situation to the next. And now they found in these faith-based correctional facilities, people who love them, Hmm. people who care for them, people who invest in them, people who look up to them as mentors. Hmm. And there are arguably some very positive sides to FCBIs. Uh, So I wanted critics of FCBIs to have to grapple with that. I also wanted proponents of FCBIs to grapple with some of what I hint at are some of the criticisms I have, uh, primarily in terms of, you know, the things like we just talked about earlier, where I don't really see them reforming as much as they're offering an opportunity for people who are already going that direction. And so I'm not going to make a recommendation one way or the other. Faith-based correctional institutions are morally, politically, ethically complicated as hell. And I hope wherever you land on this issue, you can see the other side's argument. Mm -hmm. But what I am happy to answer is what I would recommend for criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. And uh, it would simply be significant criminal justice reform. Stop using prisons as often. Stop using prison as the default form of incarceration. Uh, Allow low-level nonviolent drug offenders to get out of prison. Mm -hmm. These are easy decisions. The reform has to happen at the level of laws and the incentives provided to to prosecutors who are incentivized to go for the harshest punishments. And so that's the area at which I would focus. And when you change the laws and you stop over incarcerating, that creates a room for all kinds of options that may or may not involve faith-based correctional facilities. Great, great. Well, thank you for that response. I appreciate it. Um, And thank you for this interesting conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Brad Stoddard, and I'd like to thank our production editor, Anna Donch. You can find an excerpt from the book, Spiritual Entrepreneurs, Florida's Faith-Based Prisons and the American Carceral State, in the upcoming May issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. And you can purchase Spiritual Entrepreneurs wherever you currently buy books. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing the 40th anniversary of the first identified cases of what became the HIV AIDS epidemic and how a religious community in San Francisco responded to the crisis. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Anna Donch. If you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.